Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Mazar. I'm your host. And today I have with me my beautiful and loving significant other and co-host, Deborah Micus. Hello. And today we'll be interviewing Regina Hild of Regina's Farm Kitchen in Atlanta, Georgia. How are you doing today, Regina? I'm doing terrific. Thank you. How are you guys? We're doing very well. It's a, We've recorded quite a bit of podcasts today to get out there, so we're well warmed up for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what you're doing in, in your business and, and the products that you sell. Um, so we are a small batch um, artisan fruit spreads. Um, we started off with making our products um, in our Dunwoody kitchen and just, you know, watching the business grow and talking to lots of people and selling direct to people, we then discovered that in order to grow the business, we had to go to a co-packer. So our business is built um, basically from, I was born and raised on a farm in Iowa um, and I've always had a love and appreciation of food. Okay. Um, from being small all the way up to being a grown-up. It's it's always been in my heart. <laughs> and did you do lots of cooking with your family? I mean, growing up on a farm, and I mean, a lot of people I've talked to who grew up on farms, they eat, you know, basically off the land and eat very fresh and whatnot. And so, I mean, a lot of the family recipes are a lot of how these food entrepreneurs start their companies. And so did you have a lot of that as a kid growing up in your household? We did. Um, as a matter of fact, um, there were seven people in our farm. On in our excuse me, there were seven people <laughs> in our family, um, and so there was always lots of mouths to feed. My dad farmed the two hundred acres by himself, and my mom took care of us kids. And from a very early age, I can remember um, going to the garden, planting in. April, like planting potatoes, uh, Good Friday with my dad. And then, you know, my mom had strawberry patches around the farm. Um, she loved growing strawberries and she was a bit of an entrepreneur herself. So we always picked strawberries and sold them by the roadside and whatever we had left over, we always made jam and put it in the freezer for the winter months. Um, that's where I got my love of food. And i always joke around with my friends that I was eating organic before it was a cool thing. <laughs> before to do. it was a thing. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So you just said your mom had, was somewhat of an entrepreneur too. And so is that, was that the, her selling the fruits and vegetables on the roadside or is that what you're referencing or was there something else? Um, yeah, my mom, she, um, she kind of built, kind of instilled into us, you know, being sustainable and having, you know, knowing where your food's from. And so we had ducks, turkeys, chickens. We had all the farm animals you could have. And um, I learned a lot from my mom. You know, I learned how to fry chicken in a black iron skillet. Um, <laughs> I learned how to butcher a chicken from my mom as well. I mean, that was Wow. One of those not so pleasant <laughs> things that as kids, yes, right. we all did that during the summer times. But um, my mom was a business lady. I mean, she, if 
she was not selling strawberries. She, um, she loved to get out and make money somehow. I mean, she was, she was a brave lady. I, that's kind of like where we learned all of our, our uh, skills as being independent and self-sufficient as little farm kids could be. Right. No, that's um, really cool to hear yeah. that, you know? And so, I mean, here you grew up on a farm. And so did, was your dad entrepreneurial too? Because as much as he's running a farm, he then has to sell the products. And so who was his end user? So my dad, um, he, um, like he was born on the farm. He worked with his dad when he was young. So the farm is actually a century in farm. It's been in our family for 100 years. Um, Not always easy to do. Um, And that's probably why my my parents really instilled hard work in us. And and we had, we all had little jobs to do. Um, My dad actually sold um, feed corn and feed corn. The best way I can describe that is he used to sell corn, um, for a company called McCurdy Feed Company. And he would have test plots of corn out in the fields, and he would put the flags out and show everybody what what um, hybrids he was growing on what rows. So the farming part, my dad did do large farming with corn and soybeans, but then he also like had this small business on the other side too. Um, and then, of course, he had the garden. Um, we gardened. That was like a smaller scale. But to me, my dad, whatever he had left over, my dad would go in. And they actually sold it at a small farmer's market in Toledo, Iowa. Um, it was something that he liked. Like his hobby turned into like his side business. Okay, so both your mom and dad have this entrepreneurial spirit. They, you know, have all this dimension to their life, your mom being the mother of seven children, all these different things. So at what point were you like, this is the path for me and I really want to get into being an entrepreneur for myself. How did you get there? How did I get there? That's, it wasn't, it wasn't automatic. It really wasn't. I mean, you know, going to college and getting a degree, I thought that's what I need. I need something more than just, the skills that I have, you know, hard work in my background. Um, my parents did not go to college. Like they graduated eighth grade and then they stopped and then they worked. Like they worked, they worked and lived off the land. I saw the struggles that my parents made. I, I thank God that they taught us because I think that's sort of what's missing out there right now, if you look at it. Um, Like, we never had a lot of things growing up that most kids have now. Right. So you you always need a plan B and a plan C. And that's why I said, I'm going to go to college. And from college, let me go work for somebody. And, you know, I did that. And then I discovered that I like to color outside of the line. (laughs) I like to make up my own rules. Right. And... And food for me, I always knew everybody needs to eat. Food is great. Like the memories I have from growing up on a farm will always be with me. 
That's awesome. I love that. And, you know, I mean, really, you can hear your passion for your upbringing and your family and to be able to attribute you going into this industry because, you know, of the fond memories you have of all that. That's awesome. And so you now, so at some point you get there and you're like, I'm going to start my own business. And so did you, you had mentioned you learned how to cook and stuff from your mom, but you know, what, did you have other training? As a matter of fact, I did. So, um, in between the corporate jobs and moving a little bit, um, I, I always knew that probably a degree would be helpful. So, in 2010, um, after I did all the corporate jobs and I worked for lots of people, I decided, you know, it's time that I need to do what I'm passionate about. And that's when I went and got my culinary degree um, in 2010. And for two years solid, I worked in the field, um, not meaning worked in the field, but I actually worked um, in some commercial kitchens around Atlanta. Really? And I worked for, yeah, I worked at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Atlanta. <laughs> um, the chefs were excellent. Like, they gave me my first opportunity to work in a commercial kitchen while I was attending school. Wow. Um, that, that, was, that was enjoyable, but it also taught me um, the skills that you need. You know, the skills that you need along with what you know in a kitchen, they were all important. Um, and so when so you were in the kitchen, helped. were you like, I mean, were you actually cooking? Were you helping figure out the buying? Were you helping create recipes? I mean, what, how far encompassing was your role? So at the Hilton, I didn't, it was mostly plating up. It was, it was in the pastry shop um, in the kitchen and I was sort of like an, an apprentice to the pastry chefs that were in there. Right. Um, plate, we would plate up like 2,000 pieces of cheesecake and put a, a raspberry <laughs> sauce on the cheesecake and then send it off. Right. So it was a lot of hands-on doing. Um, it was baking cookies, making croissants. Um, there are... There were, that was a large convention sort of hotel setting. So the business was sort of seasonal, right. but it worked with my school schedule. Well, so that was nice. So, I mean, was that part of your education where they had you go do something like that? Or you just wanted to compound your education with actual hands-on learning? Um, I actually kind of, my younger, my younger sister is a master pastry chef. Um, Lorraine, she's out in Omaha <clears throat> and Lorraine always told me work in the business before you jump in and go to school work in the business at the same time right? and get as much experience as you can while you're in school school will require it but you just have a leg up if you can get yourself out there and get working in the industry yeah. and that's kind of like what I did that sounds like yeah. good advice you know, before you kind of dive in too deep. So then, so you got your degree in, uh, after going to culinary school and then, and then what did you do? Did you go straight into owning your own business or how did you like make the decision? Cause that's a big one, you know, to go from like, 
you have this training, you can obviously go a million different directions with that. So how did you pick your product line and that, that you wanted to start that? Well, so my last, yeah, I wouldn't say it was my, my last year in school there um, was a small um, local bakery here in Dunwoody that was opening. And I applied, I got the job, and it was just like a short 10 minutes from our house. So that position was something that just kind of popped up. And I felt like the more I learned, the better I would be. You know, I got the corporate side at Hilton. Let me get a startup under me too. So that's where I started up and I worked with this owner here in Dunwoody. Um, the bakery is no longer in business, but it was a, um, it was an organic gluten-free bakery. Mm-hmm. And one of my positions at this bakery was that I would go into the kitchen and recreate products and our products were a hundred percent gluten-free and organic. They eventually got into Whole Foods, and then I got real good because my 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 um, my position there at the bakery entailed me wearing lots of hats. So when and you I actually say you recreated a, you recreated recipes, do you mean to try yeah. and bring to turn it into a gluten free product? So you would have to figure out like, oh, we're going to yeah. use almond flour, or and to have the same consistency, I'm going to do whatever. Is that what you're referencing? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what it is. Um, our products got picked up by Whole Foods, and that's where I got the the indication, like, wow, so this can go into Whole Foods. You know, this can – this is basically another branch of business that I enjoyed working with. I loved the creative part of it, you know, working flavors and recipes and turning things into something different. And making something that the customer actually wants right. and they're, they're looking for. It was a lot of fun. I'm sure. It sounds yeah. like fun. Um, and baking's an interesting one. You know, I definitely, like, I think cooking and baking are dramatically different. Um, it's almost like baking is a little bit more of a science because you're always looking for things to rise and whatnot. You know, whereas um, it's not just the flavor profile, but it's also the chemistry of, you know, getting it all to perform the way you need it to. It's much more exact, I, I think. So, um, and so then, so you were doing that, you mm-hmm. saw that your products that you were able to recreate were, you know, successful enough that they wanted them in big chains like a Whole Foods or whatnot. And so after you yeah. had done that, how did you decide that you were going to do it for yourself and not just someone else? Um. Well, you know, one of those things that, you know, don't get too, don't get too comfortable with what's going on in your life because then, you know, you never know what's going to come up around the corner. So (laughs) that ended up not turning out so well, um, parted ways with that small business. Um, yeah, that was challenging time, but in the end, um, in the end, I left. And so how did I end up making my own product? Um, and that's kind of a fun story. Um, I have, um, 
we still have really good friends that live up in North Carolina and he dabbles in the garden. And this friend of mine always has a large garden and he thought he was growing green bell peppers. Well, these green bell peppers turned into jalapeno peppers. (laughs) Yeah. And the part of me, this is the part that I love to share because by accident, you know, the crafting and the bottling of our preserves kind of happened by accident. Um, I'm a little bit laughing at that just because I'm like, I cannot imagine anything happening in my life where I would accidentally end up having, (laughs) making, making your scenario, you know? So it's like, it's funny because it's also a myriad of your entire background of growing up on a farm, knowing how to cook, knowing all these different things that made it so it was even possible for that to happen. But it's kind of funny to say you accidentally had it happen, but you know, it's sometimes makes me think that when we think things are accident, maybe there's a little design in there, you know, that it's like your whole life's path led you of all people to be in this situation, to be able to, to do this. Um, and I got to tell you, the the first product that we made um, from Regina's Farm Kitchen, we started this product, and it's called a it's strawberry blueberry jalapeno jam. Yeah. And we won. We actually won an award with that jam. We won in 2018. We were invited to go out to the Good Food Awards out in San Francisco. Wow. And. One of my, our preserve was um, in the top 15 selected by the judges. That's. And that was very exciting for us. So, you know, having the parents, my parents were depression era parents and they would never throw anything away or throw anything <laughs> out. And being a chef, I decided, you know, I don't want to throw these jalapeno peppers away. I could turn this into something really delicious and that's where the preserve came in. I I started playing around with them in the kitchen and making this, and I kept making it and kept getting it better and better and fine-tuning the, the formula. And then I would take it to parties, and I would give it out as gifts, and then people were like, you should make this. You should sell this. <laughs> and that's kind of like it happened. Right. Um, okay, wait. So how the, early the, on yeah. did you win that award from – the inception of your company, like, was that relatively like you had started making this product, not just for your own self and for your friends, but actually started producing it. And then how quickly after that, did you win this award? Well, we incorporated, um, I incorporated somewhere around 2016 and I started the product. I, I started giving it away and making it for friends at Christmas time. And, birthdays and such and parties. And then we won the award. We found out. So 2017, July, 2017, I, I was talked into putting it into the contest. Um, One of my good friends who makes caramel sauce down in Sarasota, Florida. Uh She encouraged me. Her name is Christine. And she encouraged me to apply and, put my preserves into the contest and from July to October of 2017 I was I was sort of I sort of had that feeling that we were going to get it 
because they kept after me and they kept coming back. Like the officials and the judges kept asking more, more and more questions. And so we knew like November that we'd won. And then in January of 2018, we went out to California to get the award. Wow. And so, I mean, I've heard from people who have uh, won in their category at the Flavor of Georgia or whatnot, and they were just kind of like, they mentioned that it was early on in the starting of their company, and they weren't really prepared for the attention it would bring to them. And so did you experience Mm -hmm. something similar to that? You know, how, like, were you getting all sorts of attention and people reaching out to you or wanting it? Or did you have to figure out additional production? I mean, what came with all of that? So, I mean, it does happen. What came of that was, you know, the perfect op, it's the perfect storm. Here's somebody wants something that you make, but can you keep up? Can you make this? (laughs) At some point, you have to decide, you either go to a, a commercial kitchen and start producing it on your own and see how that goes. And if it doesn't, it can go left or right, but whatever happens, you if people start buying it, they want it. Right. So that's when we, that's when we decided, okay, we're going to do this. We have to do this right. So we, um, I went to the University of Georgia, and I went to see a couple folks out there. They do a um, starting an, a food business in Georgia. It's a two-day course yeah. at UGA in Athens. Um, so I attended that and I decided, let's And this do it. is following let's... winning. Is that correct? So I've got the sequence. Yeah. So you yeah. win this thing and it, it, you already actually have a company, but now you're like, I'm going to take a class on starting a company. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah. so you're just I'm... having to like, you know, drink out of a fire hose. <laughs> like, oh my God, mm-hmm. how am I going to get this all done? Crash course, two day course. Here you go. And it's so, very overwhelming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're taking the course, and what, did it give you the tools that you needed? Yeah. I mean, at the first day, you're all excited, you're pumped up, but you know, you're they're asking you some pretty, pretty tough questions. You know, do you have what it takes to be a food entrepreneur? Um, you know, are you really an entrepreneur? These are some questions that they threw out at us. Right. You know, can you take rejection? Um, do you have enough money? Who's going to do this? Do you have marketing money? You know, do you have a business plan? Are you incorporated? I mean, on and on and on. So, <laughs> yeah, you. So you were you sort quickly of like, like sweating bullets, like, uh oh, <laughs> or were you like, yeah, I can do this? When was it giving you confidence with the additional questions, or was it making you nervous, or both? It makes, it's both. It really, yeah. And, and that's where you have people in your back, in your back pocket who help push you through and kind of coach you. And you surround yourself with the, with the positive people that have done this, or you reach out and ask for help. Um, But if you were not to do this, you would be very disappointed. And I'm, I'm kind of like that person. I'm like, come on, let's give it the old college try. Let's do this. <laughs> right. Somebody else is if you don't. So, you know, how fast can you run to the finish line? You have to just have confidence in yourself to keep going 
and not overthink it. If you overthink it, you're going to go back 50 steps. You have to just keep plugging away every day. Right. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've said before on the show that um, if someone were to give you a script and tell you what you had to do, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's a little overwhelming. I don't know that I can do that, you know, but you, as an entrepreneur, you just kind of are always pivoting and figuring it out as you go. But it sounds like a little bit in attending that class, they gave you the script. <laughs> you know, they're a little bit like, Hey, this is what you're going to have to do. And that's, you know, where mm-hmm. you, I can see how you could maybe start sweating some bullets being like, wow, you know, cause it's not just one thing at a time, which is really kind of all anyone can do is one thing at a time, but it's instead showing you what it all looks like. And so, so you persevered, you took the class. And so did you go straight into production for yourself, knowing that you had won this or did you reach out? I mean, how did you figure out your next steps? The next step was very scary. I mean, all of a sudden you're on the roadmap and then everybody wants to talk to you. Where can I buy this stuff? Do you have a a storefront? Uh, I mean, all the questions and you've just got, you've got that chance to like say the right thing so you don't turn them off or you say the right thing that the right thing that intrigues them about you. And I decided to go to a a small kitchen and, and I rented a kitchen probably for three months. Um, And it wasn't the best scenario it's one of those things you wrote the check and then three months later, I'm like, Oh crap, this is not going to work out because the kitchen is next to a, you know, it's next to a bar and your hours are 10 o'clock at night until 6 AM. And is it safe for you to go there by yourself? Um, Oh yeah. I mean, I had, several conversations with my husband. He was like, I don't think you should go there. We need to talk (laughs) about this. I'm going with you. Those kind of things. And, you know, like I said, you write the check, you got to see it through. And so once the three months was up, I was like, you know what? I need to rethink this. Which direction do I want to go into? So at that point I began speaking to, um, other places that have prep kitchens around town that I could go into. And I just began doing my own research. And initially, you know, it's signing a lease. It's deciding, do you want to do that? Or do you want to turn this over to somebody else to help you with? And in the end, I went to um, a co-packer in Decatur, and she helped get the product in the jars for me. I source all the fruits. I source all of my um, ingredients, um, all the packaging. I source all of that, and I make sure that it's ready for her, and um, she prepares it for me in her FDA-approved commercial kitchen, and she's licensed, and it's been a great relationship. Um, and, and I uh, saw on your website that it says small batch. And so I wanted to ask you yeah. about that because, I mean, I know we run commercial kitchens. So, you know, small batch is always mm-hmm. a tricky thing because with more, tur- that means more turns, right, to produce the product. And if you're putting it in a, right. you know, smaller container versus a bigger one. And so, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, but I'm, I'm hearing also that there's a, uh, is it a consistency and that's why you like small batch or, or what is the benefit of the small batch? Yes. Um, because at some point it's food science. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you start scaling up, scaling up your recipes. Um, it's food science and things don't always work together. Right. Um, and it could be a big flop at the end. So those, that's why we do small batch. There's a point where your capacity is not any more than, you know, 10, 20 cases at a time. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know that much about, I've only made jelly um, a couple times from crab apples that grew on a tree, but near my house, at my uh-huh. house. But um, so are there natural pectins or, you know, do you, what do you have to do when you're making this? I mean, I know you're now having someone else do it, but maybe you could go a little bit into jelly making for, you know, just because it's interesting in, for someone who's never made it. Um, what goes into that? Because, you know, I, I believe that the crab apples had their own natural pectin. And so it, it was able to turn into a jelly. I don't even really know how it works, but that's probably the food science part of it. <laughs> but maybe you could share a little bit about that with the, with the audience. So, um, lots of, so fruits out there, your fruits all have different natural pectin in inside of the product you know like a peach has a different has different natural pectin than say a strawberry um or or a blackberry and in order to make um jam spit or kind of gel um there are there are products that you can mix in with it you know that allow the product to gel and have a consistency and that's where if you can't achieve that, then there are other like natural products on the market that you can mix in with your fruit. So they'll set up nicely. Um, and if, if, if the fruit is green, there is, <clears throat> there is pectin there. Like Granny Smith apples have a ton of pectin in the, the green peel. Right. But say a peach has a different pectin level. Like peaches have to be ripe. They have to be juicy um, in order to form a natural pectin. And apples are equally as different. Um, You mentioned jelly. Jellies are made with fruit juice. And that's something we, we don't make jellies. We actually just, we, we like to be called fruit spreads or we like to be called preserves. And is that because there's there's, actual pieces of fruit in it? Yes, because there's fruit suspended in them. Um, And also the sugar content. Um, That's why we went to the University of Georgia to have the food scientists help us. Um, There are levels of sugar and fruit in each in each jar and they have to have a particular number because if they don't set, they can spoil and not, they won't be good in the jar. Um, And it's all based upon the water, the sugar and the fruit. And so do you have to add sugars? Because I know a lot of fruit isn't like super, I shouldn't say super sweet, but as sweet as you would imagine in a, preserve or in a jelly that you would have? Yes, 
that is very true. Like raspberries tend to be a little sour. So um, we do add sugar to our um, fruit spreads and because all fruits have a different sugar and a sweetness, con, you know, they're all different, especially like our strawberry, blueberry, jalapeno. We've got the sweet with the um, the sweetness of the strawberry, the blueberry. And then at the end, you get, you know, the the hit of the jalapeno, the, the zesty spiciness. Right. And to balance that off, we put sugar in it. And it's a really nice. It's a great engagement of all flavors. And that's what you want to achieve when you're making these. And so, like, I know that, you know, from eating just like strawberries out of a little container, you can have one that's super, super sweet and you can have one that's more tart. And so when you're making it, um, I'm trying to imagine having a recipe where your product is not consistent. And so how do you, you know, can you just always say, I need a cup of sugar? Or do you have to also have tasting so that from batch to batch you have consistency or from different parts of the year when they're picking the fruit um, to get that consistent, in, whether heat or, or sweetness, how do you do that? Um, it's, you know, it's tasting. You definitely need to taste while you're making your batch. And, I mean, you go by the flavor. You know, you go by the mouthfeel or if it's too tart, you know, the strawberries, to me, are the very best, the first beginning part of the season, um, as I do think that, and the peaches, to me, also, the peaches, I think, get better, and they're sweeter, kind of mid-season, right. um, but you try to get the fruit at the the best time that it's ripe and it's ready to go, Um and and as far as the sugars go, you know, we don't adjust the sugar from batch to batch. We really rely on the fruit. And for most most of the time it's it's right there. It's just like wine. I know when if you're drinking wine, wine can be different from year to year. It's not it's not an exact science every year. And that's where you're gonna get a little different in your grape. Right. And and what about in terms of the jalapenos? Because I know going to the grocery store, I mean, I can have one that's light your mouth on fire and I can have another one that's like a green pepper. And so how about the consistency of the heat of the jalapeno? They're different. They are. (laughs) So how do you keep that heat consistent from batch to batch or year to year? You know, uh, there again, the peppers can be different you know sometimes we'll pull some of the seeds out but we we like to use the membrane as well as the seeds in this one jam because it helps bring the spice level up but you can also adjust that by taking out some of the membrane or the seeds right you know, I want to, and since we're talking about that, I mean, just my own experience of playing with jalapenos when I'm cooking and stuff, it seems like when you're cutting that out over the sink, that sometimes it can really like even make you cough because it's so spicy. But then if you pull it yeah. out, the, the actual, you know, meat part of the jalapeno isn't necessarily so spicy. So um, is that, so is that a trick that you can just keep that in there if you want to keep more heat? Yes. Yes, the membrane, so when you're cleaning out a jalapeno, if you scrape all the seeds and the white pith out of it, yeah, it brings the heat down 
the heat it won't be as hot um and also if you're baking jalapenos or you're roasting them the longer you bake or roast them the more mild they get ah that's interesting i did not know that I didn't either. Oh, Although yeah. I, it does, I mean, I guess it follow. You know, I'm reflecting back on my working with them in my own kitchen, and that I guess I, that makes sense. I just never pulled that all together. Yeah, and of, of course, the capsin level is different in habaneros and jalapenos. Um, we use habaneros in our peach habanero jam, and. We just went out and visited some friends out in Phoenix, and I took a case of that with me. And this friend eats it every day on toast in the morning. (laughs) It sounds delicious. I can imagine making that a habit. So maybe you could tell us about what some of your products are and share with the audience. Absolutely. So we have, right now we have six flavors, Um, strawberry, blueberry, jalapeno, our first. Uh, then we have another one that we make with blueberries from South Georgia. It's a blueberry lemon Ooh. jam. Um, and then I made a triple berry. We have triple berry. It's made with Granny Smith apples and Georgia honey. Oh, that sounds delicious. And yeah, we don't add sugar to that one per se. We only put the honey in. Mm-hmm. So that jam is the lowest in carbs and also it's um, the lowest in sugar. And it's a bit tart. And it's a little loose than the other one. Right. Um, so then we also have the next ones I have I peach um, Madagascar vanilla bean. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. I love and, your flavors are yeah. so unique. They're not, you know, like the typical strawberry and grape. <laughs> no. Yeah. So the other one, we love sweet and spicy. So the peach habanero, it's gorgeous in the jar and it's it can be enjoyed on a savory dish or even, you know, just for breakfast. Um your packaging then, is gorgeous. I mean, I was looking at it online and you. I mean, they just look delicious because with the clear bottle or, you know, it's a glass bottle, it's, they are gorgeous. So well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and we're really excited because um, Georgia is now, well, they have been, they have been growing citrus here for several years Um we have a new relationship with a new farmer down in Statesboro, Georgia. Um, it's called Franklin Farms, and they grow um, satsumas. And satsumas are sort of the mandarin orange family. Um, and it, we're so excited because we got to play around with um, some satsumas from the farm this year. And so now we make an orange satsuma Meyer lemon marmalade. Um, and it's got rinds in it, and it's beautiful. And it's, it's tart, and it's, it's fun. 
I have to tell you that I've only recently discovered Satsuma oranges, well, because they have started growing it in, in Georgia, and we were down in Pierce County and, and sampled a few, and now I can't eat any other mm-hmm. orange. Anytime like, we've stumbled upon them, Justin is like, I mean, literally, they're, you know, he, we were, where were we? And they were $6 Virgin a pound. Islands. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, we were in the Virgin Islands for a okay. while, and they had Satsuma oranges, oh. and they were, yes, yeah, $6 a pound there. And it's... I, it, they're easy to peel. They're easy to manage with that. Yeah. To me, they have the perfect sugar levels. Um, I don't know. There's, uh, it's hard to ever go back to another orange. They just don't taste the same to me. Or, you know, I think there's a huge thing there. And I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second. And I'm so <laughs> glad you're making, you know, preserves out of it. Because I'm like, someone needed needs to do more with these fruits. Especially because George is now growing so many of them. And people are planting them like satsuma orange juice and you know varieties within food or or making sauces or barbecue sauces or whatever it is and i i can i mean the the excitement that i just heard deborah's (laughs) like oh my god there's someone else i know as soon as you brought it up i'm like oh here we go here we go because i just it's changed my life i it's weird that food would do that but i mean it literally is the best orange or for me citrus that i've ever had and for me to say that and i've been in food my whole life whether it was my family or or myself to have some product that actually comes along and blows me away in that way i think is phenomenal um so well, then de- we're gonna have to get you a couple jars of this <laughs> yes yeah, absolutely well and the other thing I, w- I wanted to say is my my other recent discovery because I didn't even know pepper jelly was a thing until the last three years we've been spending so much time in Georgia. Like, so I'm like, okay, pepper yeah. jelly. Well, recently I've discovered that pepper jelly or any pepper type of jam or preserve is amazing with peanut butter on bread. And normally I'm like a straight peanut butter on toast type person. I'm not, I'm like, ah, jelly. I just want the peanut butter to lay, delivered straight in. And I eat peanut butter right. by the scoops. So it's, but once the flavor profile and change of just a peanut butter sandwich because of preserves like you're doing and and um and the jams and jellies that are going on in other parts of Georgia I think you know the audience there's a really a a great thing going on down there in Georgia and what you guys are doing so one I'm very excited to try your products and in various different ways and the Satsuma orange one yeah, I know we went off on a tangent as you were talking about your flavors, but that really <laughs> excites me because I know that yeah. I, I love when people buy their agricultural products locally to make their their products that then can be shipped all over the United States or even the globe because supporting that that local ecosystem and economic system is so important. So. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm like, uh, the smile is like ear to ear right now over the oranges. So, um, but anyway, we, I didn't mean to interrupt in the middle of you telling your flavor. So I do have another question, but I'll wait until you get through, um, talking about all your flavors. Um, so those are the six flavors that we offer right now. Um, we and can, do want to bring out two more this year. And, and what are those? Ah, uh, I really, I really want to go with something like um, we're considering something with strawberries. 
Oh, so you're um, like in also, the kitchen trying to figure out new flavors. You just want to expand your line, but right now you're playing with different ideas. Yeah, we're playing with some different ideas, but we want to expand with something that is um, a strawberry one. Um, whether we partner it up with something else, another fruit um, or a pepper, we're looking at that. So we're doing some taste taste testing. And the other one is fig. Fig is so underdeveloped. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> figs are amazing. So I would like to get my hands on some figs. And, you know, Georgia doesn't do, they're really not known for figs here in the state, but I'm sure we can find a small farmer for those. Those are two flavors I want to play with this year. Regina, mm-hmm. will you also tell the audience a little bit, like there's so many different uses for this type of product other than just eating it on toast. So will you kind of share some of the different uses? Um, yes. I mean, there are, there's, there's a hundred ways. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much time we have, but I, um, we like to use one of our products, the strawberry blueberry jalapeno. We, I, we like to go and make wings, hot wings with that. We use it as a glaze. Um, we enjoy pairing it with um, puff pastry and brie. Um, we like doing a pulled pork. Like I made pulled pork peach habanero sliders. Oh, my God. Um, those were fabulous. They with sound amazing. There. Yeah. Um, we even make cocktails. We did um, a blue farm teeny is what we called it. It's, it's an essentially a, it's a cosmopolitan made with local vodka from one of the distilleries here in Atlanta. Um, we actually used Old Fourth Distillery Vodka. We take our blueberry lemon jam and we partner with a little bit of triple sec and we shake it and we pour it into a um, martini glass. So sounds there amazing. Are creative ways. You know, yeah. it's, I, um, I used to have this guy work for me and he worked as a bartender in a previous job and uh, he used to make dessert martinis and he, it was so creative. He would take the glass, you know how like on a margarita they put salt on it, but he would do like shavings, yeah. like he would use chocolate syrup, he'd dip it and then he would like put coconut shavings on it or, you know, he had all these different ways of whether it was sugar on the rim or, um, chocolate shavings or whatnot he did all these different things and then put a martini like what you're describing in there it just sounds amazing (laughs) plus a great presentation yes it is so i mean yes you can put it on a scone you can do jam on a toast um but i think that it's fun to be savory or you can do something sweet with these they're they're very versatile and they make they make great gifts um, we, um, but we do want to expand the line. That's one of our goals this year is to expand the line and also to develop, um, smaller jars. We sell our products in a nine ounce and, um, we're looking at doing something half the size, like a four ounce, three ounce jar, something around there. And just so yeah. the audience knows, uh, Regina, could you uh, tell us all six of those flavors that you guys um, have available again, just so we 
we make sure everyone can hear it because I know we're drooling over here in our studio and I want to make sure the audience hears all six flavors again. Absolutely. All right. So from the top, we do strawberry, blueberry, jalapeno, peach, vanilla bean, peach, habanero, blueberry, lemon. We do triple berry that's made with honey and apples. And then lastly, we do a orange, like an orange Meyer lemon marmalade. Um, and we use Satsumas from Georgia, from South, South Georgia. And then do you want to just give everyone also like where they can find these? Um, one, what is your, you know, your different handles? And two, if it can be found in certain stores. Yes. So right now we have an online, we have online presence. And that's um, reginasfarmkitchen.com. Um, we are also at local farmer's markets. Um, we're at Brookhaven Farmer's Market, the Alpharetta Farmer's Market, and Dunwoody. Those are the three markets that we're at on Saturdays. And I would just tell everyone they can always go to our website and look at the events and locations where to find us. Um, we are very excited. We have um, some retail and wholesale business going, and we have some restaurants that we're in as well. So we're mainly just here in the Atlanta um, metro area, and um, we're expanding, um, but it just it's just me right now, so it takes time. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that. Um, you, you're now doing most of this yourself, as you said, and at what point do you feel that, you know, you're going to add two new flavors? So we talked about that, um, or products, but how do you envision your growth going forward? And at what point do you sort of have to bring on more people and how are you going to go about it? Do you have an idea of what that future holds? Um, so right now, um, I, yeah, you're correct. Being a small business owner, you know, there's always capital and resources and employees to think about. Um, for me, I've been the one that's been present at the farmer's markets on the weekends. Um, last year, I brought on three part-time people to help at the farmer's market. So it's just a Saturday position that they would work. Um, then what I would like to do more of this year is getting more strategic and having someone to assist in like the social media. Um, I handle the distribution right now and that kind of determines how like if you don't have stores then you know who do you, who handles your distribution so it's like what came first the chicken or the egg and it's like you almost have to have 30 I was told you have to have 30 retail partners before some distributors will even consider you and that's a lot that's sort of like it's a lot um it's a lot and 
so we're that's what we're looking at. If it doesn't happen this year, then next year definitely. Um, but it's one of those growing pains of being a small business. Um, you know, we're definitely not the big old guy up in Michigan or you know the other person on the West Coast. We're 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 small and sometimes small is okay. Um, I can sleep. I still sleep at night. We'll just say it that way. <laughs> The distribution mm-hmm. thing, I think, is interesting. And, um, Regina, as we see more of it, and I normally don't talk about our side of the business much on the podcast, but what we're seeing actually is there's quite a bit of entrepreneurs that are coming out, particularly in the uh, Georgia area, that are actually trying to debunk that system and create more of an Uber-style model, uh, for lack of a better term, of doing distribution for customers where it's sort of grouping small entrepreneurs uh, in the food and beverage space together and sort of picking up their products and delivering them as they need them versus um, the traditional model. And as we uh, learn more about that and see that grow, I will actually pass on some names to you that may help out and then you don't need to do your own distribution as much or wait to that uh, 30, uh, retailer position, you know, threshold, because I, I myself think that there's this weird gray area in food and beverages that, that everyone runs into. You start your business, things are going well, but then you have to make this gigantic leap to the next part of growth in your business. Uh, and unless you do super amount of online sales, you know, it's hard to get the capital to do that leap, but it's also, you know, even if you do get the online sales, it doesn't help you with that leap because it's not like it's bringing in the additional retailers. And even to get those additional retailers, you got to spend money on sales and on the road and time. And it's a very hard part of the business. And so I think there's people out there that are recognizing it's an issue and they're trying to disrupt that a little bit. So as, um, over the next few weeks, as we get a better idea what those look like, I will make sure that we make a note here mm-hmm. and, and let you know. And and as I get on other podcasts or do a Motivational Monday, I can let the audience know. But I, um, your hardship in that growth or trying to figure that out in the distribution model is definitely uh, one of the big things, as well as how much money distribution companies want um, to just distribute your food when you're the one procuring it, selling it, securing it, finding the customers, and then they make more money than you do. So I think there's a lot of people out there that are seeing that that's a problem also uh, in their models and trying to disrupt all of that. So I wanted to touch upon it just because I you mentioned in, outside of the podcast as well as on the podcast, we have a lot of people that you know, have come to us or spoken on the podcast that have that same issue. So I hope that the entrepreneurs who are in the food and beverage distribution space are listening in because the model does need to be better. And there are so many companies that are like Regina's company out there that need someone to fill that gray area, you know, from being, you know, big, um, you know, where's the medium space and who's filling it. And so, I just wanted to touch upon that, but I had, um, another question for you and I just, I know we talked about it a little bit, but just out of my own curiosity, cause I don't, you know, we mm-hmm. don't produce, um, 
things like this. Uh, we co-package them, but I guess I don't fully understand. Um, and now that we've talked about it, is what is the difference between jams, jellies, preserves? I know you mentioned fruit juice, but what exactly is the difference between the three of them? I mean, they all three have different names. So what makes them different? Um, all right. So the FDA, they're the ones that set and tell everyone who produces what you can call your product. And it's based upon the, they put strict guidelines on the sugar that you put in your jam and to make it a governing kind of a governing shelf life. Um, so when I, when I started this process, I knew what my sugar levels were at in every jam. And uh, that's the part where you you want to call yourself a jam, but because you are less than the governing FDA sugar required, they make you, they don't want you to be called jam. So we're sort of calling ourselves like artisan fruit spreads, Okay. Um, but so preserves are, I'll tell you this way, preserves are when you have whole pieces of fruit suspended in the mixture. Um, and fruits, they, they can be all fruits. Okay. Whatever fruits you decide to put in there. Um, the next thing is the jellies. The jellies have more, they actually we don't produce jelly, but jelly by definition has no pieces of fruit in it. And it's gelled fruit juice with added sugar, lemon juice, and usually some pectin. Um, marmalades are a combination of one or three different kinds of citrus. And they are made with chopped, parade, or sliced citrus. Um, it's usually cooked with some sugar, lemon juice, and pectin. Um, our marmalades have a lot of citrus peel in the jar, and I think that that gives the character of of you know the 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 chef or the manufacturer who makes it. Everybody's different, but we like to put citrus in ours. We like you to know that there's a citrus peel in it, and and when those are cooked down. Um, with the sugar and the lemon juice and the pectin, it's just, it's a real nice marriage of everything that you'd want on your toast or, or something served with cheese. So those are the three types. Hopefully that describes what you were thinking. Um, no, that, they are. that was perfect. Mm -hmm. And so that being said, what is your most popular flavor that you offer or do you see people most attracted to? Um, right now they like the spice. Um, and because we're, we just, you know, from, from being in the business for just a few years now, they all go back to that strawberry, blueberry, jalapeno. That's been our number one seller. Um, and folks that don't really like big, big spice, you know, peppers and all, they go to the blueberry lemon and, uh, the triple berry. Um, and peach vanilla bean has, has been very popular for us being here in uh, the South and in Georgia. Um, and I'm, I get asked all the time, will you do 
a fig preserve or have you considered making strawberry rhubarb or just straight blackberry? So from this business all, you will find out. And in any business, you know, you can't just make make it for you because you are trying to please your customers. So you need to produce what your customers are asking for, whether you like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any interest in expanding outside of the jams and marmalades? And do you have any ideas of other items you'd like to add to your product line? Oh, well, other than just different flavors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also like to dabble in the kitchen with, um, like I said, baking has always been like one of my loves. I do love baking because it's, to me, it's therapeutic, but I, um, well, and baking could really go hand in hand with the products you already have, right? Cause you can just blend them in. Yeah. Um, right now I don't have any other plans to grow like, you know, into any other sauces or anything. We're probably going to just, nail down these what we have and and try to bring in some more flavors and grow the business that direction um perhaps in in a year or two we'll do some ancillary other items to sell with it Mm -hmm. and so um if you could go back regina and and tell yourself something uh in 2016 you know three years ago when you started this business and Tell yourself some things you wish you knew then that you know now. What would they be? Mm. Um, I would I would tell myself to set bigger goals. Don't be afraid to set something that's too small that you know you're going to achieve. Set big goals because. I think that big things happen. I think when you write it down, write the goal down and just go for it. You know, try not to try not to be afraid and try not to overthink it. Um, also, I would advise, you know, the business plan, which has been very challenging for us, but that's that's really important to have. Have a plan. And um, research what you're doing. Yeah, I can see that for <laughs> sure. And e- even the planet pivoting is somewhat hard, but I, you know, the plan is definitely a thing to help you get started. Um, and, you know, it's not easy. And, you know, what are the things that you love about doing right now with your business? And what are the things that you don't like doing? Wow, that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as entrepreneurs, we have to do it all, right? So, I mean, it's individual to each person. Probably the easiest thing for me is, I mean, I I love the customer interaction. I like to be in front of, of like, the audience. Um, It's fun to meet your customers. It's fun to delight them. Um, what I don't really enjoy about this business is the, um, the, I guess the hardest thing for us is finding enough time and balance to get 
everything done. Um, the hardest thing I think is the planning part. So I've, I, I find myself just, you know, you're, sometimes you're at a roadblock. Okay. What are you going to do this week? Um, and you just have to like, you know, keep great notes and a plan and a planner in hand and you just go, you just check off everything one thing at a time. That's probably the, the toughest part. Yeah. Understandable. And so, um, on a, I'm kind of jumping around to all my questions here, but have you had any products or flavors that you've created that haven't worked out and that you've stopped producing? Um, no, I'm going to tell you, no, there's not that. Uh Uh-uh. And uh, we've been very methodical. Um, I've been really lucky because if I ask for help or an introduction to somebody, I've gotten it. And if it's not a competing company, for the most part, people want to help other entrepreneurs. Um, But this company said that they went from like a 16-ounce jar to like a gallon-sized jar, and then they went down back to a 9-ounce jar and... And they've been very helpful. So, you know, they they want to share with you what mistakes they've made so you don't make them. And I've always, I've also been told that like seven products is the key number that you want to, you want to have. Don't get over your head. Do seven great products right now and get them under your belt before you decide about going on into anything else. And I feel like we're still in that we're still in that chapter of this business. Um, and so when you guys are making, like you're about to make two new flavors, how do you, how do you decide? I mean, does it come down to you or do you, you know, have certain people you bring into a room to help you make sure you're hitting a, pro, a flavor profile that you think will be, you know, delicious to a whole variety of people? How do you go through that process? It's it's like going to the lab. It's going to your kitchen and going to your lab and playing around with the flavors, um, the recipes. It's key. I mean, everything from, you know, the fruit to the sugar and to the, the flavor profiles and then saving that batch and then bottling it up, labeling it, and then distributing it to like your A team. And it doesn't have to be a lot of people, but it's people that, that, that you trust that will tell you and be honest with you. Right. And then, and then you go with it. Yeah. Um, but having an honest group of, of people that don't have anything really to do with the business, but they want to see you succeed and also will be honest with you. That's how we'll do it. It's sort of like starting from scratch. Um, and that's like, that's our motto, made from scratch by farm raised chef. So I always try to remember all that when I get into that mode of creating and crafting what we do. That's great. I you bring it back to, to your this, basics, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to see this product. I mean, I by no means 
want to be in 50,000 stores across the United States. I think right now what's really neat and unique about this business is that there's a select group that can find this jam that will pay the money to buy the jam. And the product is made based upon my values, how I was raised and who I am. And it's good stuff. Um, so that's, you know, I, I think it's okay. It's okay to be small and start off small. And once you get your legs, you can get running to the next thing. You know, I think that's a lot of what people like about artisan products is, you know, there's no one who's a better salesperson than the person creating it. And, you know, I love hearing how you like to get out there and you like to see your customer and bring them joy. And, you know, I think it's each, I think it's a mutually beneficial relationship because I think the person who purchases the artisan products also loves hearing the story and they like hearing the backgrounds of the people making it. And so it's just, it's a really symbiotic relationship and it's fun to hear about and, um, you know, see your family traditions or whatever go on to someone else's kitchen table. So it's a cool story for sure. Thank you. I, and I, I have, I do have one thing to share. That's, I'm kind of hearing that from several of my new retail partners that I'm working with, the boutiques, like the mom and pops. Right. They don't want something that, that's on a store shelf and they want something that's unique. And you have to remember that, that those are the people that made you successful when you start the business. You don't want to burn bridges. You want to, you want to make them happy and keep them happy. Um, and that's what I think is very unique about artists and products. Um, you have to be careful on how fast you grow and where you take the product. Um, because, you know, you're starting a brand new company if you don't do what you intended to do when you set out to do the, the business. Right. I mean, only you can hold true to your mission, vision, values and, you know, why you started it in the first place. And it's very easy to morph into something unintentionally. And so really kind of keeping your eye on the ball as to what you want your company to be. I think that's a great point. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I guess... With that being said, is how um, how do you stay inspired every day and motivated to keep moving forward with your business? Because I hear all the positive feedback and and how you stay true and stay true to your uh, vendors um, as well as the your clients and the people that sell your product. But what motivates you to keep going and keep pursuing this dream? Um, what keeps me motivated? I would say really just the motivation in running the business, um, it's, it's forever changing. And I remember this while I was in culinary school and my chefs used to tell me, they said, this is, you've entered the culinary world. And if you're not learning, you're not growing. And if you're not inspiring someone to try your food, then, you know, you're not growing. You're, you're not who you set out to be. So I think that's, I think you got to consistently delight your customer so they keep coming back. And if it were easy, 
everybody would be doing this. I mean, this is this is hard work. This is challenging, and you got you got to be that person that if someone's dangling a carrot in your front of your nose, you're going to go and keep striving to make that carrot better than somebody else. And I think there's plenty of business out there for everybody. Um, it's just how hard do you want to work? And I, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Mm -hmm. And the motivation thing is, you know, uh, you know, for me, and just to take it a step further as entrepreneurs, I think that working for ourselves and determining our own destiny, and you touched upon it at the beginning of the podcast is never being able to color inside the lines. And so as individuals Mm -hmm. that do that, it's very hard to think about having to work for someone and then them telling you how to color your picture. Uh, especially in the lines and what colors to use and things like that. So I, um, I love that. I love your story, Regina, and I love um, how you started off in, in a, on a farm, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, ironically, with a lot of people. Um, a lot of people start off in some sort of family venture or farming or in fine dining and culinary background, uh, obviously because of food, but also there seems to be this thing that the entrepreneurs we have on this show is, is one, the willingness to, to start something and not afraid to fail and knowing that if they don't do it, um, you know, then they've never taken the chance. And that is a failure. Failure is actually never starting also. And you mentioned that as well. So I think that's hugely important. The other thing is, Um, you know, as you said, coloring outside the lines where we get to live and determine our own destiny. And while it's hard, um, we do get to make an impact and we do change people's lives, uh, whether it's through food and food does bring people together and people give food and give products and, you know, just the friendships we, we gain around food as entrepreneurs also, I think is, is important because you mentioned that as well, uh, having a group of people that, you can talk to and send your product to and test and having those people in your life and you being a part of their life and giving them a chance for their voice to be heard and the products that you are demonstrating or trying to um, develop and using their feedback, it makes people feel important and, uh, and cared for and loved for sure. So I love all of those things. Um, So, as we, we keep going forward, Deborah had mentioned your labels on your bottles and your logo and, and yeah. the presentation. So this is my last question, which is, is how did you go about designing all those and where did the ideas come for the logo and, and the labels on those bottles? Because I, I agree with Deborah, they're, they're so well done. Um, we always like to hear how people come up with those ideas. Um, yeah. <laughs> So the chicken obviously is something a part of my life. I mean, as a kid, I told Deborah, you know, I know how to feed a chicken. I know how to take care of a chicken. I know how to fry a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken was a big deal for us. So that that I knew when I sat down with my um, with this advertising agency here in Dunwoody. They they know my story. So the more I talked, the more nouns and adjectives got written down and the rolling pin for me you'll see a rolling pin the chicken is actually standing on a rolling pin it's my my mother collected rolling pins I collect rolling pins 
Um, and the name, well, obviously my personal name is in the brand and that's who I am. Um, but the farm kitchen, I would say that, you know, to me, it talks and speaks a lot about like your, my background and where I grew up and, and my love of the kitchen and food. So that's where that all kind of played in. Um, but my, the firm that I work with here in, uh, Dunwoody, it's called Crab Rattermacker. And it's in Dunwoody, and um, the managing partner, oh, probably back in 2012, yeah, a long time ago, 2012, he um, he was a big push for me, and he was a big proponent of me starting this business. And he said, if you don't do it, you're going to keep talking 20 years from now that you should have did it. <laughs> so it goes all back to, like, surrounding yourself with great influences. And this advertising firm um, that works with me now, they do great things for me. And they make us look good and they make us sound good, look good, and we're professional. And all of our um, promotion material and pieces come from Rick and his managing team. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to them for that. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'll make sure I, I want to make sure I put that special mention to them in the notes of the podcast as well, since they've helped you so much. But, and just to touch upon it, I mean, I love that message because we often talk about on the podcast that if you don't do it, you know, it's the fail, the fear of failure. And thus we never take the first step forward. But the other part that we never talk about is what you mentioned, which is, getting 20, 30 years down the road and being like talking about how I should have done it and I never did it. And then living with that, um, you know, and I think a lot of people have that and, and even myself as an entrepreneur and, and maybe even Deborah, I don't, I don't know. We haven't actually ever talked about it, but there is some things in my life that I wish I would have done that I never did, um, when I was younger. And, you know, looking back and having that feeling of why didn't I do it or why didn't I pursue it, it is a little bit of a feeling that hangs on there. And it's it's a little bit of a dissatisfaction that you didn't do something that you could have done and had the opportunity to do then um, or in life. So, you know, for that reason alone, I I think taking the first step, it's another reason not to be fearful because having to live with that you know, something eating at you just a little bit, wishing you would have done something, you know, that's hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, we mm-hmm. shouldn't be hard on ourselves, don't get me wrong. But I think that you touched upon something that's important is it's much easier living with we tried it and, and did it and maybe we failed at it, but most likely we won't because if we take that first step forward, then we're committed to doing it. And we've found on numerous occasions on this podcast that a lot of people do succeed once they make that step forward if the if they manage their money properly and and they don't try to grow too big and as you said make sure they pick you know you know we always talk about five to eight products and you mentioned seven great products and i think that's a good rule and it's sustainable and you don't try to grow too fast and you don't try to get into every market there is and and burn yourself out and you manage your family time uh as well that everything sort of can come together but you need to be able to be mindful of what you're doing. And all of that is much better than the feeling of never actually doing it and then living with that 20 years down the road. And so I'm, I'm glad we talked about that for sure. Um, 
And it was sort of the thing, I guess, with the podcast also. Once I decided to do it, it was eating at me that I hadn't already started it. And, um, you know, and I was scared because, you know, my voice being out there, it's kind of hard to imagine. That was only seven weeks ago that we started it. But uh, considering we've recorded so many episodes, but the uh, at least seven weeks ago when we're recording this episode. But the thing is, is that my fear was is that I never wanted to look back and wish that I had done it. And I think that is an important thing. It just I never put words to it until you said that. And so I really want to ingrain that in the audience who's out there listening and debating whether they want to actually start their own business or be a food or beverage entrepreneur because the feeling of going out there and doing it and obviously you want to take the right steps and and as you did make sure you have a little bit of training in in whatever it is you're about to do we talk about that too and how you went to culinary school to get that training and then went out and got some work experience before you actually started so you learned as you said and and mentioned that if you're stagnant you're not growing and so make sure that you're constantly learning and growing is an important part of the entrepreneurial process, even before you even become an entrepreneur. And so I wanted to mention that as well. And, um, you know, God, I, I can't wait to get you back on Regina and hear the new flavors you develop and your next steps forward and, and how you're growing. So, I mean, I'd really love to have you back on the podcast in the next eight to 10 months and, and tell how your journeys continued, if that's okay with you. That would be great. Yes, I'd be interested. So thank you again, Regina. Seriously, we really appreciate you coming on and being a part of our dream. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm glad um, glad we could do this. And I'm excited about sharing our products with you. So you guys will be getting a, a little care package in the mail. Okay? Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the audience that's out there, if you like, what you heard about Regina's products, please check her out. It's reginasfarmkitchen.com online. See what she's doing. Order some because I think they're worth trying. At least Deborah and I have literally drooled all over the microphones here in the studio. <laughs> so uh, we will be trying all of them. And the other part is please share Regina's story. Please share this episode with your friends and family. You know, we're trying to get out there and tell the story of the food entrepreneur. So those of you in the audience, please share what you have. Tell someone about what we're doing on the podcast and what she's doing and about her products, because I think they're unique in that she's really putting her heart and soul into every batch. Um, We talked about small batches. So please, you know, support what we're doing, support what she's doing and, really support the state of Georgia because they're doing some great things there as well. Um, With that being said, thank you everybody for listening in. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm the host. If you're interested in being on the show, please reach out to us on social media uh, at Justin and the food entrepreneurs or justin.bizarro at gmail.com. And that's B I double Z A double R O at gmail.com. And everyone have a great day. And I look forward to, to doing another podcast with you, Regina, and everyone have a great day, and so long for now.